we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode, I'm talking to Gazella Kaplan. Gazella is a behavioural ecologist obsessed with Australian native birds. Based on her research, our birds are highly intelligent, which means the expression bird brains is quite the opposite of what we think. Gazella's biggest worry is that Australians take their birds for granted and our way of life is pushing them to the brink. So I'm really excited to be speaking to Gazella today on this episode of Talking Australia. Gazella, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, that's such a pleasure to be with you. Now, you've written so much about native Australian birds, but I want to take you back. When did you first start studying birds? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I joined a wildlife organisation in 1994 and became a volunteer. I had to do a course first. And because I already had sheep and donkeys and uh, four Rhodesian Ridgebacks, I didn't think I should do any mammals. They would get used to the dogs and that wouldn't be very good rehabilitation. So I settled on birds, but totally without knowledge. So I had to do a course and then I started uh, getting these little nestlings in, and I was absolutely blown away, and that was it. That absolutely, was absolutely stuck there forever. Was there, a particular, was there a particular bird that lured you in? Well, they're all charming in different ways, and the idea is when you hand-raise a bird, of course, it's you are in place of the parent. So the birds are uninhibited, they show their emotions, they show their sense of justice even if you fed one bird a little more than another one there were big complaints immediately raised by the others and so forth and you start thinking well obviously they they do understand what you're doing here so and they recognized my face when I walked past you know bigs went up I didn't have to do any other uh, particular uh, signals uh, as you would expect in some birds you have to actually tap on the nest and then um, the the beaks go up, but they just needed to see my face. So I thought that was very interesting. If there's recognition of uh, different species involved and they can cross species with such ease, you know, there's much more to it than I realised. But there is a special bird, yes. There was definitely a special bird, and it happened to be a magpie. Mm. And I hand-raised this magpie. I've hand-raised lots of magpies, but some of them are different in personality than others, and this one was particularly charming. A quick learner... Uh, quite cheeky, and uh, it had lots of games with me. I couldn't step outside the house without getting my uh, shoelaces torn. So love loved the game with the shoelaces. Out it pulled, so I had to sit down, do the shoelaces up again, and then it shrieked in pleasure and did it again. But one day I um, heard sounds like, uh, I think it was go away or something, 
And I thought, there's nobody around. Uh, who's saying that? And I followed the sound, and it was a magpie. Oh, wow. The magpie saying, go, go away. And uh, I thought, well, this is very strange. This is fascinating. So I took a tape recorder, then I took recording equipment, and I set it all up, and I thought, well, perhaps I've imagined this. And then there were lots more words that were available. And I was absolutely hooked. So it was like mimicking you? Yeah. It wasn't, uh, that was the interesting part. I was trying to train that bird to speak after I discovered that. And the bird didn't say a single word that I had done in very consistent, good experimental design and nothing. Then I had to go out and check what the parents actually do to see why the bird wouldn't learn from me. And then I learned in another year's time that magpie young never copy their parents so I was a parent so I could never be copied but anybody who walked by was a visitor and said you know go away or I've got dinner for you or whatever it was um, was copied perfectly so I wasted all my time teaching it because it wouldn't accept my teaching it was in fact not permitted to and uh, the others, um, uh, the other words had learned very quickly, but from others. So I got totally involved in this, and to the point that I said, look, can I swap the chutes with somebody else, please? Because <laughs> I've, I've got this magpie here, and I've got to record it, and I've got to see. And I got so involved, I just had to stay with it. So uh, it started an absolute uh, love affair, not only with magpies, but uh, with birds in general. So you were you were observing these behaviours in birds, which anyone from you know back then would think, "Wow, this is quite groundbreaking." And I guess that's why you sort of started this conversation about bird intelligence in Australia. Um, and then I know you published Bird Minds in 2016, 2015. Um, I'm wondering what inspired that book. Was it all those observations built up over a number of years? Well, there were not just uh, there were lots of anecdotal bits of course you know you make observations and all these observations are good for is that you can formulate some ideas and hypotheses and but I guess a lot of people would have seen this over time and just gone and then you tell someone and maybe they don't believe you yeah and then I guess compiling them in a book is a big deal well not only that but I then started doing proper field research I set up experiments and uh, you know double checked everything and triple checked everything and it's quite laborious to do field uh, experiments because you're out there with the birds and the birds got to volunteer and come Uh, you're in the middle of their territory and uh, over the years it worked and I had established about 30 sites where the birds knew me and where we could enter and uh, some of the postgraduate students could also help because it's very very labor intensive but uh, yes and over over the years we started assembling uh, a picture of magpie behaviour that showed very clearly, and some experiments that really demanded problem solving, that showed that they can do a lot of things. And some of them are pure observation, and some of them are experimentally uh, manipulated. So let's say a pure observation would be their play behaviour, have a complete record of all the games they played with each other and from what age on, and uh, that happens to fall into a category that has only been described internationally in other birds in a very few avian species. It's called social play, where two parties or three parties play together. There are two other forms of play, that's solitary play and then there's object play. And then I related that, uh, I got the brain size and volume, 
and related that to a play behavior and showed those with social play were the most intelligent birds uh, and all of them had an advantage simply by playing. Mm. And let's talk about bird brain because usually that's something you say to people when you're trying to be offensive and their brains are physically quite small but and I I think you know a lot of people would think their brains are so small they're not smart but obviously you know you would think differently. Well I won't think differently you know you've got to prove it and uh, that's the point you you know already from the behavior that it's smart behavior but uh, that at that point is opinion so you've got to prove it how do they actually do it well how does their brain work and you have to have a biological anchoring of of all of this you can't make assumptions about somebody's sight unless you have looked at the cones and the and the rods and really established whether they've got color vision you know no point in saying oh this is such a lovely understands the colors when they only have blue vision <laughs> so uh, all of these aspects are extremely important so but the hypothesis was there and I, that I thought they were bright, and uh, play behaviour is an important part of that. I related that to brain size relative to body weight. You can make a log um, a relationship of those. And uh, you find that those that play in social play, in terms of their intelligence, are sit at the highest level. And even so, uh, solitary play has an effect. But... Uh, the interesting part, and I'm going to publish that now, actually. I'm writing on it right now. I've waited so long because it's a horrible thing that I'm going to say. In all Australian bird tool use, that was always seen as a mark of intelligence, made no difference to intelligence whether a bird used tools or not. But whether it played or not made a huge difference. So... Uh, there's been sort of 40 years of research on tool use and you don't... Uh, it's kind of what people use as the definitive, oh, this bird is smart, it uses tools. Yes, exactly. you're exactly right. And uh, so I haven't dared publish it. <laughs> <laughs> but the results, they were measured again and again and uh, just there was no correlation that was in any way convincing or more than chance, but there was a strong correlation between intelligence and play behaviour. Mm. And you've been re- you've written a lot of books about individual birds. You've got um, most recently the updated editions of your books on magpies and tawny frogmouse. And I have to say, I love reading these books because it says things like, you know, you'll describe a behaviour that you've watched over, you know, 20 years and you kind of read it thinking, oh, that's amazing that the magpie does that. And then all of a sudden you think, wait a minute, Gisela watched this one bird for 10 to 20 years. So I'm wondering, what does it take to actually gain the information you have on birds, to be that t- that kind of expert? Well, it, yeah, I, I watched one particular bird over the time, but, of course, we had 30 other research sites, so we watched a lot of families. And uh, But it's always very useful. And when you look back at all the research that has been done in the world, when somebody then concentrates on one species and keeps going deeper and deeper into questions and learning about it, that's when you get most of the answers. You know, if you're, when you think of Conrad Lorenz, he's done it with geese. In Zevis, uh, and they do the goffin's cockatoo, and uh, they only study the goffin's cockatoo. I've uh, studied magpies for 25 years, and to this day, I haven't been bored for a single day. It's still every time surprising. The problem is that unless you get some depth into the observations and then follow that up with good experiments, 
you don't get a proper profile of what an animal can actually do. And I think it's important that we're beginning to understand what our, some of our species can actually do. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. And I know that um, you mentioned before about um, how, you know, uh, in previous bird studies, everyone went on about tool use and the connection to intelligence. Um, and I know in your new book, Bird Bonds, you talk about same-sex relationships in birds and you talk about how we've basically um, disregarded female birdsong for, you know, for as long as we can remember. And I'm thinking... Is it almost the case that we needed female researchers like yourself and other bird researchers to kind of come in and rewrite the way that birds were even being studied? Yeah, well, that's true in a way. Uh, there have been one or two or three female ornithologists who have uh, looked at that in more detail than others would have done. But the other problem Australia has always had is that the assumptions and the theoretical frameworks were put to us by the Northern Hemisphere. And I mean the most active and excellent labs, I'm, I'm not critical of them, but uh, come from uh, Europe, UK and uh, North America, or rather the USA and Canada. So obviously they have studied the bird species they have there. Little did they know up to 2004 that all these species that flutter around in the Northern Hemisphere are actually derived from Australia. And uh, they are the ones that have left Australia. And the assumption was, even of British migrants right up to the 20th century, that we have the riffraff here and, uh, you know, Europe has the original birds and some have kindly decided to descend upon Australia and then uh, not made much of a go of it, sort of thing. So in inferior uh, wildlife in Australia, which they then thought needed to be improved with the acclimatisation society and introducing anything from blackberries to carps to pigeons to foxes to rabbits to a, a catastrophic extent. And you wouldn't believe it, but in the 19th century, ornithologists, British ornithologists, made the argument in Australia that Indian miners should be on the protected species list. So the native species were not on the protected species list, but the introduced ones were including the Indian miner, and it's now recognised as one of the most insidious uh, invasive birds uh, across the world, actually, yeah, not wow. just in Australia. So all this colonial attitude stuff came in, and, of course, it wasn't known. But now we have all the taxonomy, and we know that the birds evolved in Australia and then eventually, some 40 million years later, started... Uh, populating the rest of the world and there were no birds elsewhere so you know it's not that uh, it just mixed up so their behavior then probably changed but it's we should study the originals here and see where they have evolved to and then see what's left for the rest of the world and how they had to alter and adapt in order to survive different climatic conditions and whatever you know but that's uh, quite amusing so <laughs> yeah and and what does make australian birds so unique well I, they are unique simply by the uh, by reason of having evolved here um, and, and then having had uh, millions of years of isolation in which they could speciate. Uh, there's always been a question, why could they speciate? Well, I found the answer, I think, 
speciation is very difficult if you have the same environment. So you ought to have very different environments. And what do and you mean by speciate? That means that species develop in, from one into two into three right, into four, right? right? And um, thought, well, theoretically, that doesn't fit Australia. But when you look back at the Cretaceous between sort of 120 million years ago and 95 million years ago, Australia was uh, split almost into half because the uh, lowest parts were all inundated by seawater all the way through down. And there were thousands of islands, so the landscape would have been very different and absolutely perfect for speciation because every island would have created its own species, right? So the kind of species explosion that happened in Australia uh, is remarkable and basically uh, birds didn't get out of Australia probably before 40 or 30 million years and most likely the latest view is it was probably even 20 million years ago in the Miocene. So all that time the birds were just in Australia. So, you know, they had plenty of time to develop. And they've come up in evolutionary terms with strategies of survival that are incredible. And when you look at cockatoos that live for 100 years, to 100 years. Which still shocks me. That yes. still is shocking. 100 years. They take... Seven years at least to sexual maturity. They may never get married until they're 12 or 13. Then they've got these fancy ceremonies um, uh, and then they mate for life. I mean, they would all make uh, the Queen Elizabeth Award for long-term marriage, you know. They, <laughs> many of them are together for 60, 70 years. And uh, they produce offspring that have a very high survival rate. And when you get those data in, and then you look at humans, that's the only other branch where that has happened. Very long time of immaturity, two parents committed to raising them, or possibly an extended family, and then a long life. So humans live very long, birds live very long, Australian birds live very long, and South American birds, of course, you know, belong to the same uh, tribe, live for a very long time. And you realise suddenly that the strategy that the birds have chosen is one of the most successful ones in terms of survival and long-term survival. You've almost made me feel like they're living in their own world. They have borderline the same things as us and they're, we are to them what they are to us, kind of. Well, you see, we've always been terribly afraid of anthropomorphizing and I'm, I'm against that too because you can misread behavior so easily you know uh, I remember standing in Perth uh, and people were visiting an orangutan and they were, people were so pleased when the orangutans came over and looked them straight in the face well I'd worked on orangutans for many years and uh, they said isn't it lovely that they're coming over they're so friendly well what in fact was the case it was a, a threat posture the direct stare meant if you don't stop looking at me, I'm going to cut this window oh down and, 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 you know, just go away. So it was a threat posture, and it's misread because we anthropomorphize. But if you start off at the brain, and you were mentioning before, and brain and hormones and biological factors, and you start comparing those, what happens, and there are similarities or similar structural um, preconditions, then you can say, well, that thing can happen. For instance, if I give you several examples, if you have um, 
song development, you need a song control system. You need a system for auditory input, you need a system for output, and you need to have relay stations that get the input translated into memory and then into output. So uh, unless you have the nuclei or the centers in the brain that can do that, there's no point in talking about that and, uh, and surmising that no doubt the birds could learn if it wanted to or something. So uh, having that biological basis is a, is a very useful thing. So yes, vocal learning in birds and in humans is based on having the right nuclei. And then you mentioned that um, uh, you know birds have a small brain. Yes, but the organization of the brain, the architecture of the brain, if you like, has got many similarities. It seems like evolutionary, there are only certain building blocks that are possible, and these can be developed. And since we have the computer, we also know that you can pack in a lot of memory yeah. into a very small space, right? We always thought you needed a very big head. Now, a swollen head is usually not the one with the intelligence. There's a lot of <laughs> empty spots. Uh, but uh, you can pack in a lot of memory in very small places uh, and spaces. And they need to be done, that needs to be done in a way that's efficient. So the connectivity is important. The huge amount of uh, neural connections and how many firings take place and all of that. So if that's all in place, you can then start saying, well, you know, there are similar similarities. And uh, um, these similarities ought to lead to different, to uh, similar behaviours. And they do. I want to go back to something you said before about how Australian birds are the way they are based on their climate and the harsh conditions they've kind of had to develop in. I'm wondering, uh, will our birds be able to cope with things like climate change? Well, uh, this is an interesting point um, because I've been very worried about this. We've already lo lost millions of birds. This year there seemed to be absolutely no budgerigars. The whole population seems to have collapsed. And... Uh, I think well, one problem, evolution tend to be, they can be quite sudden, but they tend to be long-term processes of adaptations for several generations. The changes that a men might have all happened very suddenly. Moreover, we get to tipping points in certain things where suddenly things really happen, like this endless uh, drought. And that's not a hysteria. Uh, many people simply say, oh, you know, this climate change hysteria, let it go away. The point is that it's getting warmer and the bodies of birds are, in magpies we know, were 27 degrees and more, they stop feeding or they will only feed in the morning. So by the time you get to 35, it's, uh, they, they simply can only feed in the morning or at night. But if it gets beyond that, then it's, it's a death sentence. An absolute death sentence. So birds have come from, and we've seen species this year at the coast that we've never seen before. They're inland birds. They had to come because the drought is so persistent. The heat has been so dreadful. It's been over 40 degrees and so forth. And so there are no insects, there's no water, there's no food. So the birds are starving, dehydrated, and they arrive at the coast. And then we shoot them when they get to the coast. That's what they're doing with corellos claiming that we have millions of corellas because they travel in large flocks, something they only do when they're really desperate. They don't move in large flocks. They move in flocks from 10 to 20, which means usually two, three families together, 
for safety with their offspring, and that's how the young ones socialise and learn their play behaviour. And uh, only in desperate situations do they flock together as large groups. So it's 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 like your Central Americans on the move to the American border. You know, suddenly you have four thousand there. So you would expect more extinctions in with oh, the unless, unless something something is done very quickly. And I don't mean this in the abstract way. Um, you can't do something absolutely immediately, and uh, that is. Uh, there is a ground rule that 95% of rain is produced by forest. So for the Deputy Prime Minister to argue that we can't make rain is not true. All you have to do uh, have is a forest. And if you have a forest, 95% uh, of rain will have been produced by the forest and 5% from mist from the ocean. So the more, if you plant now, you actually protect the land from further deterioration, salination, desertification, all of the problems. You can't do something about this, but you can't give logging companies permission to cut down old uh, growth forest. That, that, that definitely spells extinction for birds. That combined with the climate, uh, the lack of water, lack of insects, lack of food, and uh, human expansion. But human expansion is, is almost... Is a, I, I would never use that as an argument because in most of suburbia, bird-friendly people will have uh, birds in their garden. And the truth is birds can adapt quite readily to human populations, particularly if they're friendly populations, of course. you know. But a tree produces more air conditioning than about 20 big fridges. It produces water, it captures carbon, a single tree, economically, uh, you could buy a house for that. So I don't quite know that people who are not nature lovers wouldn't see the economic argument to leave it there. And uh, for me, the tragedy is that all nest building, nest hole nesting, birds um, simply won't be able to breed. And they don't unless they find the right nesting environment. They they just don't breed. So when people say, oh, yeah, well, you know, they're not dying out, we could see them flying around here. So the problem is our birds are very long-lived. But if they don't produce another generation, you will have the sudden collapse. You know, uh, you have that in kookaburras. They live for 30 years. Happened in one area where I gave a talk. I said, you, you realise that you're kookaburras are going locally extinct. There was a stunned silence. I didn't say any more, just that, that one sentence. They, they didn't believe me, which is fine. So they went out and looked and then realised there wasn't a single nest site anywhere of uh, kookaburras. So locally extinct means not that these birds are diseased or unhappy or, uh, you know, some of them may be suffering in the drought, but they live their lives without being able to reproduce, either because the food isn't there or because it's too hot or because um, there are simply no nesting sites available. And we are losing nest sites en masse. So it's almost like climate change, land clearing, less nest sites. It's all kind of compounding into this catastrophe. Exactly. So it's not just climate change. There are a number of variables. And at the moment we are doing our 100% level best to do the exact opposite of what would be advisable. 
in every regard, in terms of even water maintenance, you know, build more dams. Do you realize that um, in America they have blown up most of their dams? They have so far uh, taken, I think it's about 1,100 dams that they have um, exploded and let go back to original stages. In Europe, it's over 5,000 dams and weirs that they have destroyed because it's a technology that doesn't work and it's, ext it's extremely hard for harmful and has so many side effects. They've shown that forests died and wildlife died and uh, people couldn't live there anymore and suddenly, you know, whole areas were unusable. And uh, so that's one reason. And uh, the other one is the evaporation problem. You know, I have a bird bath that only has carries 15 litres of water. Well, evaporation rate is 15 litres in a week. And imagine that's a tiny little bird bath. So we have about the most wasteful way of keeping water in dams. And for somebody to even suggest a 19th century technology that everywhere else in the world gets blown up as inefficient and useless, and they spend millions of dollars to blow them up. I, I want to go back to something that you said about long lives and breeding processes, um, which are all mentioned in your new book, Bird Bonds. I feel like a lot of people would be thinking, um, you know, bird relationships, bird bonds, what do they just see, colourful, you know, plumage and, you know, then they're attracted to each other, bam, that's what happens. Um, but I guess you have a lot to say about, you know, the complexity of those relationships in reality. Well, the point is, um, you know, Darwin quite rightly said the main drivers of evolution are natural selection and sexual selection. Natural selection is by disaster, by illness and so forth. So individuals get weeded out and sexual selection is partners actually choosing each other. So that's a really powerful way of guiding evolution. Now, I think we've always begun at the wrong end. We simply think that birds fornicate and reproduce and that all of them do that. And that's just not true. They're about 15, 16, 18% sometimes, sometimes as low as 5% of a species that reproduce in any given year. So it's a, it's a minority. So let's start with that. It's a minority of birds that reproduces. And does it start with reproduction or is reproduction the end point of a, of a relationship? So I've started walking backwards in the argument and said, well, something, if somebody, if somebody bonds with somebody else for an entire lifetime, surely that needs more than, let's say, particular hormones at breeding season. That can't be just all instinct uh, there's got to be some more because there's got to be communication. And you've witnessed birds that have been in relationships for decades. Yeah, exactly. And then you wonder how this is possible and what kind of preconditions are in that. And then it turns out that uh, there's some birds and they're the, this is now a very new idea and there are only a very few research project results out. But it, they show that even... There was one study by Teitelbaum uh, of the uh, migrating whooping crane and uh, she did wonderful, and her colleagues did a wonderful study. They simply banded all the juveniles that they could find, something like 200 birds or so, and then watched next year which ones were pairs. And uh, they found that most of the breeding pairs were birds that had been together but not breeding for at least a year, and then even some uh, had friendships for two years before they started breeding. So there was a long 
acquaintance period uh, and socialising period of the birds well before they started breeding. So breeding breeding's not the beginning point, it's the end point. And that what you get beforehand is what has been called familiarity, uh, intimacy, um, attachment, uh, and attachment theories I, I like best, really. I know that in um, your book on... In your book on um, tawny frogmouths, you mention how you witnessed um, one tawny frogmouth actually mourning for its partner when it had been hit by a car, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, so I actually wanted to take the uh, pick up the bird, but it was quite dead. So, And I thought, well, the other tawny wasn't moving while I was touching it. And I thought, well, if I take it away and do an autopsy now, the bird has nothing. So I kept the bird there uh, and uh, quelled my curiosity and thought, this is the partner, you have the bird. And then I visited the partner every day several times to see what happened, and uh, it never moved, it never once moved. It was just whimpering quietly, fluffed up, and um, after the fourth day it died. Just fell down and fell almost next to the other bird, so I collected them both. That was uh, incredible, and that whimpering sound I had already recorded occurred actually or tended to occur, the, or let me put it another way, the only time I actually heard it was when uh, young tawny frogmouths were asked to leave the territory and the young ones knew they had to go, and the last night they whimpered a bit. <laughs> went on all night. Uh, it touches your heartstrings. So they have, they have the ability to have emotional intelligence? Well, the point of emotions, were, I mean, we've always known that they can be angry, we have got no hesitation as humans to attribute negative emotions to animals. Aggression, and, and we're very ready with all of that vocabulary and nasty and whatever, but uh, not positive ones. So uh, it's time to work on that. And once you have an emotional brain developed, which is the right hemisphere, left eye use, which recognises individual faces, we... All the uh, hormones and the neurotransmitters that occur in the brain and birds are the same as in humans. Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin. So they are have an important regulatory role and it's the left hemisphere that can control excessive emotions. So both hemispheres have, have something to do with that. But then we have in humans developed that idea of emotional intelligence. And... Um, that suggests that you can learn to know what your emotions are and can control them and manage them in some way. So that's the basic idea. And uh, so there have been interesting studies with cockatoos and ravens on self-control and impulse control. You can do, test that very easily, actually, um, and give them a favourite food. There's a favourite food and there's a not-so-favourite food. And if you take this not-so-favourite food now, and but I wait for half an hour to give you the really favourite food, you can have that favourite food only if you don't eat that one. So it means you have to have self-control not to eat this in order to get the later reward. In sociology, we usually call it deferred gratification. 
in uh, in birds it's, or, or in humans it's called self-control and uh, children can't do that about the age of five you can tell them your favorite thing will be waiting for you if you don't eat this one the moment the experimenter walks out <laughs> so basically <laughs> birds are smarter than children <laughs> well uh, at least as smart as five-year-old children so yeah, ravens and cockatoos will definitely wait for better quality over time but you know it depends how long it takes there's a time frame in which that can be done when doubts arise and you know they fall back and get weak and eat whatever they can get but uh Certainly for half an hour, and uh, children um, <laughs> have trouble even up to the age of eight. And final question, Gazelle. I'm just wondering, how are you hoping people react to the information about bird relationships and the complexity of those relationships in the new book? I think my experience has been, particularly you know, with the magpie and the tawny frogmice book, and even the bird minds. So. The people start watching the birds themselves and when you've explained the behaviour they can see it themselves and they themselves become the observers and the critical observers and that's a very good thing because that means they can get involved in the birds in their garden or in their environment at a deeper level and they can also begin to appreciate that a bird can have empathy, a bird can be consoling, a bird can be attached to somebody. Um, a bird can be extremely upset and grieving and that the range of emotions available to a bird are greatly similar to humans but largely so because despite the evolutionary distance the choices made are very similar ones that humans and birds have made and since both of them are the most successful species on this world uh, one needs to think about that you know perhaps um Falling in love is not such a bad idea. <laughs> uh, extended family doesn't seem to be a bad idea. It gives a cooperative framework, and Australian birds are very good at that. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me today, Gazella. Oh, great pleasure. <laughs> There's not more to say, of course. <laughs> Anytime. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Gazella Kaplan. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.